I was born black, I live black, and I'm gonna die probably because I'm black. Because some cracker that knows I'm black better than you, nigga, is probably gonna put a bullet in the back of my head. Hey guys, welcome back to the Blood and Black Rum Podcast. I'm Ryan from ColdSploitation.com, and I'm joined with my co-host, Martin. How's it going? We are back. Uh, we've been doing like two or three shows in a row now. Um, weekly, instead of bi-weekly, as we normally do. Because the COVID is over. <laughs> well, we're still doing them remotely, but uh, we're doing... Um, I don't know. We just have a lot to do. We have we, we have more that we wanted to get in than then have time for so we just decided let's do it weekly for right now it's not going to stay that way i can't keep up the pace i'm an old man now with kids i can't keep up a weekly pace (laughs) but for the time being we're going to do it weekly and get the shit done that we want to get done i'm sure the wife's happy that you're doing it that way like you're like okay good he's down the basement usually when you're down there doing that means a chance for you to throw the laundry in yeah and yeah the laundry or that means she gets to watch like her, her shows like The Gilded Age or something like that. That I don't really care about. So. What the, isn't that supposed to be like America's version of like Downton Abbey? Yeah, I mean it's it's uh, written by the same people as Downton Abbey, and she loved Downton Abbey, so <laughs> she she binged that like for sure. Very, everyone very everyone lives in harmony in Downton Abbey. The poor's and the people with money. <laughs> <laughs> so. We are in the midst of February. It's still, um, we're coming to the end of February, but we're still in February at this point. And when this episode releases, it'll still be February. So we wanted to do a, an episode that related to February's most iconic month long celebration of black history month. And we wanted to pick an, um, a movie that, we had wanted, we have wanted, have talked about doing for a while now, uh, one that has a prety big historical context for black history films, um, technically considered part of the black exploitation genre, uh, in an early, um, entry in the black exploitation genre, but tr- almost transcending that genre, um, going above what you normally get from black exploitation. And if you've listened to the show before, you know that we, we do enjoy black exploitation. Um, but I would say in, in this scenario, the film is, is sort of like above that genre. It's certainly more widely regarded than a lot of black exploitation movies are. Um, because black exploitation in the cult genre canon is big, but in other people's, you know, historical, um, Context, black exploitation is not really that important in the scheme of things to hardcore cinephiles. So this one kind of even gets outside of that genre, that subgenre classification a little bit. Um, and Martin had schooling 
in the black exploitation genre um, with his uh, his uh, was it black studies class or black history? Uh, yeah, one of the first uh, upper level college classes I took for uh, my education degree because I have a adolescent education degree with social studies as the background. Um, all of my upper level classes were based in African American history mm-hmm. in the United States. And my first one class I took was on the Black Power Movement, mm-hmm. and we got to watch some black exploitation films too while we were taking this class and mostly uh, ones that centered around like the black power movement um, yes so the two that we got to watch was sweet sweetback's badass song which is another film one day i'd like to do on here because it's definitely within the wheelhouse of what we do but the one i think is that is more of an actually interesting film to watch and kind of more Kind of more dense, uh, denser film. Even though Sweet Sweetback, you know, is a has is definitely got some, you know, his, historical context and you know headiness to it that you know is why it's been revered. Is uh, but I think the Spook who sat by the door is a who sat by the door is a better offering for not just a film but also in kind of the what it has to say. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that when people. I mean, at least people that I that I know, you know, kind of jump to when they think of black exploitation films. Uh, mainly, probably because it's kind of a hard film to uh, to find for the most part. Um, I, I still don't think to this day there's a Blu-ray release of it. Is there? No, I don't think so. <laughs> which is surprising because of you know how well revered it is. There's really no um, readily available way to watch it. You certainly aren't going to get it on any of the streaming services. Um, you know, it's not, it's just not there. And the only thing that I found, you can find it on YouTube. Um, you can watch a SD version of it on YouTube actually. Um, but really the only way that you can watch it right now is, is a SD pirated version, um, that I know of. I've not seen any other, um, opportunity. Uh, there's been no recent Blu-ray releases, um, and you know, there was, is, I say there, I say there was a DVD release back in '04, but uh, Lord only knows that's probably out of print. Yeah, you know, and Hearts is probably tracked and down. It is interesting, you know, because um, a couple of different Blu-ray companies have been doing some um, some um, black exploitation revivals. Uh, Vinegar Syndrome being one of them. You know, they released a lot of of um, black exploitation movies and, and uh, all films at one point was, was releasing some on Blu-ray as well, mainly Pam Greer movies, uh, some Fred Williamson movies. Um, so it is surprising that this one in particular did not get released and it could have to do with rights too. I'm not really sure, you know, who owns the rights to the film and where they lie. So a lot of times when you don't have a new release, it it's generally tends to be because of rights issues or, they can't find a good source for the film. So maybe, you know, the original negatives are not available or, you know, uh, there's not a, a good hard copy available somewhere for them to, to make a transfer from. So I'm not sure in this particular scenario what that limitation is for releasing it, but um, it is interesting that it just hasn't gotten one. And I think a lot of the, uh, the world would uh, want a release, a good release, and, um, you know, especially for, for film criticism and, and historical context of, of black mo- made movies, uh, this is really one that 
stands out to me because um, a lot of black exploitation movies <clears throat> from the like mid to late seventies uh, were technically made by white people. <laughs> uh, a lot of times they uh, were either helmed by a white person, you know. So a lot of directors um, were white. Um, sometimes writers were white, and those types of things can really come off in the black exploitation movies where you're watching it and you're like some white guy wrote this movie like <laughs> it doesn't really have a natural feeling of being part of like the black movement um well, the prime example of that uh roger moore's first outing is james bond live and let die because it's a black exploitation film and it's like oh when Bond back in the seventies, when Bond was just following every fucking film trope there was, because right after that, what's the next film? The Man with the Golden Gun. What's that? It's a kung fu film, mm-hmm. and so on. So I mean, that like Live and Let Die is like a prime example of like, hey, there's money to be made here. Yep, yep, and co- and you know, so a lot of the Pam Grier movies too. Coffee, Foxy Brown, directed and written by Jack Hill, white guy. <laughs> you know. Um, I'm not saying that those movies come off poorly just because of being written by a white guy, but they certainly don't have um, some of the black um, visionary elements that a movie like The Spook Who Sat by the Door has. Because The Spook Who Sat by the Door is based on a novel written by a black person, and then the film itself is directed by a black person, and then it was also written. The screenplay was written by black people. And so you do get a lot more of the black voice here than you can expect to see from many other black exploitation movies. And I think that's what really sets this book who sat by the door apart um, and makes it feel different than the other black exploitation movies. Because um, I would say that this movie is uh, somewhat more serious, somewhat more grounded than a lot of other black exploitation movies. Like um, if you're talking about like Coffee or Foxy Brown. Those those movies tend to be a little bit more um, exaggerated, whereas this movie is not super exaggerated. It's you know basically plays things pretty to the ground, um, and I think again that's that's why this movie may not necessarily feel like some of the other black exploitation movies of the time because it does have a different tone and a different voice um, that sets it apart. All right, so before we get too far into the spook who sat by the door, let's take a break. We've got a new beer on the show for today, um, and, and not from the brewer. They're, they're not new to us. We, we've had them on the show many times, but the beer itself is new. Um, we have done a number of Amagang Brewing Company's uh, Amagang series, which uh, is their like specialty series where they kind of branch outside of their norms. Um, Amagang being a Belgian brewery, uh, generally things in the Amagang series tend to be more uh, like limited edition brews that fall into the IPA category or uh, sometimes sours. Um, in this case, <clears throat> this Amagang series beer is their, I think their newest one, right? Uh, as far as I know. As far as we know, it's their newest one yet. Um, because we've tried to keep tabs on pretty much all of the Amagang series that's been coming out. Um, this one is Keep It Crunchy Granola Stout. And it is a stout 
with oats and caramel and a lot of adjuncts, including cranberries, um, pecans, and flaked oats, and many other types of oats, which I always like flaked oats. I like saying it. <clears throat> Makes you feel good, too. Yeah. Like, oh, what's in there? Flaked oats. So what do you think about it's, this? It's, 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 it's like when it's not – you're not having oatmeal. You're having steel-cut oatmeal. I know. I do love steel-cut. Steel-cut always – I don't know why, but it always makes me feel a bit differently about it. Like Because they add a nice, pretty, bougie term to it to make it is. It, it is nice. Like it immediately draws your attention. You're like not just oats. These are steel-cut oats. I don't know it's, what that means, but it sounds same. nice. It's the same thing when you're talking about, well, I shouldn't need that TikTok. It's like the asshole make, doing a pour over coffee and being like, this is so much different than your regular blend. By a pour over, you can control what you're drinking. Most coffee just tastes like coffee. But with this, this one has hints of berry because coffee comes from cherries. It's like, all right, you know what? You, you, you bouged it up enough to where I'm like, I want a Maxwell house. Thanks a lot, <laughs> asshole. Like I like a, I, I like a, it's like I like a good cup of coffee, but Jesus Christ, all right. Like mm. if I was, if I walked into uncommon, uncommon grounds and had to listen to some asshole talk about that, I'd be like, you know what, and just walk down the fuck you and walk down the street, to Stewart's, and buy my two dollar coffee and be like, yep, delicious. <laughs> well, what do you think about Keep It Crunchy? I like it a lot. Um, I don't know if this is their first stout. I don't think it is. I think a couple of the Game of Thrones, they've done like stouts. Yeah, um, yeah. I would say the Game of Thrones ones, definitely. Oh, didn't we have one of the Game of Th- Thrones when they first came out and like one of them was a stout and it was like, yeah. We did. Tastes- it was like the one that was like the Blackest Night or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and you're like. It was like extremely dark. Yeah. Um, But they're not known for their stouts. So I'm kind of curious to why they somebody, their brewmaster was like, hey, let's do a. Let's do a granola stout. But that being said, even though it's out of their wheelhouse, um, I think this is a very fine stout. And with now it getting colder than a witch's tip back up here, mm-hmm. um, this is a nice stout to go with it. Um, as Ryan said, uh, the flaked oats is very present. It's what gives you that nice like kind of granola taste to it. It's definitely very got a very large cocoa and vanilla taste to it. You definitely get the flaked oat taste that makes it like, you know, nice and earthy. Um it's supposed to have like honey and pecan and cranberry. Um I'd say the pecan's very mild. Like you get it at the back end just a little bit, but the honey and the like uh the honey and the cranberry dried cranberries I don't really get at all. But it, overall, I still think it's a very good stout. It's very enjoyable. It's very silky, very delightful. I like that they were trying to go for like, like a trail mix. Like, you know, that's like like that's something that a stout, you know, with all the thing, the adjuncts that usually go, like the that they pair up, would go well with. But I think pro- maybe because they're not as experienced with making, you know, stouts, they couldn't pull it off. Like if this was just supposed to be like a like oat stout, like that oatmeal stout, then I would say it did a damn good job um, hitting all the notes that it was supposed to. Uh, they don't. 
But if you're one of the lucky few that like tastes like that, like dried cranberry and like pecan, let me know. Um, but overall, yeah, I like it a lot. I like it too. I do think that the um, <clears throat> the flaked oats and the vanilla are really prominent uh, with a hint of the cocoa nibs as well. Um, what's not super prominent to me is the pecan, uh, the honey, or the cranberries, as you said. Um, I don't think that those really come out that much as an adjunct. Um, I think the vanilla flavor actually overpowers a lot of the other stuff. And then, you know, the oatmeal element to it, the flaked oats, is really nice because it adds that nice creamy texture to it. Um, it, it, it is a solid um, mouthfeel to it. And it. I think that the vanilla flavoring is really nice. Um, but I do think that we could have used a little bit more of the complexity that is supposed to be in this beer. I don't know if maybe just letting those adjuncts um, play out a little bit longer, maybe like brewing it a little bit longer to um, to uh, get a little higher alcohol content to it. Um, whatever the case, um, I don't think that everything that's promised is here in the flavor. But I think that it's a good enough beer where you don't really need that. Um it just makes it so that it's a little bit more standard than what's supposed to be uh, the flavor profile of a beer. So I, I like it. I think it's a really good stout, but I don't think that it's a excellent stout. Like it doesn't really, you know, wow me because it really has a very standard vanilla oaty flavor to it, um, and the adjuncts don't just don't get enough room to play. All right, so let's talk about the spook who sat by the door. First of all, let's talk about what the the title means. What does it mean for a spook to sit by the door? What what does that phrase mean? Um. Well, one, I didn't know. Um, I only know the word as a racial epithet. Um, I did not know uh, it was also like a double meaning. I didn't know uh, spook was also a a word like a another name for a spy, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which, okay. you know, make, yep. you know, so, um, that, so the, the double entendre there works, uh, you know, pretty well, but in he, um, in the context of this film, uh, the spook who sat by the door, uh, one of the main things that the film discusses is, um, integration, but not only integration, but tokenism mm-hmm. and, um, the idea that like, here we go. We got one, and you put it on display for all to see. Mm-hmm. And our lead, uh, D- uh, Dan Freeman, is supposed to be our token black man who gets hired by the CIA and then uses what he learned to try to subvert the system. Yeah, yeah the idea of the film is about the integration of blacks and whites where the whites still have, like, supreme power and so the integration is based on what white people want the black uh culture to do basically like so there it's not about equity and equality at this point it's about what blacks are being allowed to do in the scope of the integration um and so the spook who sat by the door is really the idea that we have black people 
Um, and we're going to show them off to everybody that so so everybody can see. Yep, we're integrated, um, but we're not really going to utilize them in any meaningful way. And in fact, we really just want them to be like this at the center of what we're saying. And and honestly, this happens a lot too nowadays. I mean, it's not like anything has changed too much. Um, a lot of you know what happens with. Um, racial equality and, and integration and, and even in things like, you know, film where uh, companies promise to be more um, racially diverse. Uh, so they're going to hire one guy as an extra, one black guy as an extra on the back of the scene and say, yeah, we're racially diverse. There's one black guy here. Um, th- it still happens, the, the tokenism. Um, but here in 1973, obviously, we're historically – the the segregation was a lot more um was closer to the time period than we have now um well the, like the main thing to like kind of think about too is as you said the film came out in 1973 so we're not we're less than 10 years away from the civil rights act of 64 mm-hmm. passing yep so it's not like a lot of people especially today like to kind of think like well we did it yeah <laughs> Yeah, it it was it was over we, and done, and then you know every, like we, everything we, just went to normal. Right, we did. You know, we defeated racism. You know, on yep. that day. You know, on that day, um, <clears throat> and p- people still act like that today too. Because again, like you have so many people who are like, ah, you know, the past couple of years with you know Black Lives Matter becoming you know a, you know back in a movement that was getting you know media attention due to some of the police brutality that was going on in the nation that was getting actual, you know, media coverage, you know, people today still act like a lot of people still go like, well, <laughs> what are they complaining about? I mean, this, this isn't a thing. Right. I mean, and it's, you and know, we, 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 there was segregation was over so long ago, right? Yeah. We you act know, like, we, again, you act, a lot of people still to this day act like, well, that's a long time ago, but it's like your grandparents were still alive during that time period. Yeah. You know, you know people that are still connected to that, you know, that were passing things, you know, views and feelings to you that, you know, the, you haven't sorted out or, like, looked at critically. Right. And and that's the thing, too, is that, you know, 50 years is really not a long time. It's not even a lifetime for many people. And so those views, you know, like, it's not like back in 1964 when that was signed into action, people were like, you know what? That's right. Racism is bad. You know, like that day, they were just like, you know what? All these feelings that I've had and been taught uh, my entire life, like, you know what? I I, I, I get it. They're, they're not valid anymore. I reneg on them. Yeah. No. That, that was my bad, but I will learn and, and, you know, grow with the times. No, that didn't happen. You know, so. so which in- is, I say, which is film does show great because, again, we're only a couple of years past, you know, the Civil Rights Act. And it's like, oh, shit. Affirmative action. Ah, uh, fuck. What do we got to do? All right. The senator's close to losing an election, so um, he's going to blame the CIA for not having any um, African-Americans in it. So we got to hire somebody. Great. <laughs> yeah, right. And exactly. Yeah, they, they come up with this scheme. That's like that's what sets the, the movie in motion. And a great opening with three white – well, two, uh, two white people and a black woman who are uh, discussing this. And what can they do? And and the, you can tell, like, again, it's just tokenism. It's like, what can we do to possibly look good in the eyes of um, the constituency, which encompasses some black people? 
What can we do? How can we get their vote? And well, he didn't even think about it at first. He's like, well, how can I lose? Computer said I was going to win because he's, um, you know, the alleged um, – I'm just going to assume – they don't say what state he's from. But I'm going to assume it's uh, Illinois because the main plot of the story takes place in Chicago. So mm-hmm. he's, you know, arguing that like, well, <laughs> computer said I was going to win. How am I going to lose? Well, it says you're going to lose now. They is it the Jews? Am I not winning with that? Like, no, you're doing well with the, you know, with Jewish people. It's, you know, it's African Americans you aren't doing well with. He's like, oh, oh, yeah, we're gonna have to, we have to work on that, you know. And and so, you know, how much do you of that do you think still goes on today? Because the the opening scene is very uh, intentionally like humorous and also you know tongue in cheek, sarcastic about like look, look at these fucking idiots. Um, you know, not understanding what exactly is is wanted from the black population. But I mean, how much do you think of that as happening currently? You know, as I mean, it's well, we, it still happens all the time today. Abs- Culture, identity politics is a huge, you absolutely know, huge part. I mean, of- part of Biden's campaign was running on identity politics. It's you know we you know it's it's still like incredibly a crux of like you know instead of focusing on things that you know should you know be focused on you know we're still focusing on like okay like how do i appeal to you know these certain groups of people Mm -hmm. you know um so it's definitely it's definitely still at the forefront of american politics today for better or for worse but I mean that opening scene really sets you up for the rest of the, the rest of the movie because uh, right away too there's there's that trade of you know being careful about what you're saying but also being like almost uh again like trading in double entendres or or you know backhanded compliments um which is pretty much inherent throughout the rest of this film um especially from white folks to black folks but in the uh the opening there's a there's a great time where he's like you know how do we i don't understand why they're not voting for me how do we get these and then he starts to use the n-word and then takes it back oh nope you know what black black people how do we get these black people to vote for me and you know it's it's just again like right away you're like all right i see where this is going it's great it's it's a it's a knowing nod to the fact that racism never died after the civil rights movement. It just got shoved under, you know, a facade to pretend like you are accepting. But in fact, if you're left alone with the right people, you're going to still use these words that are hurtful to the black population. And, um, you know, not think about your inherent racism. Which makes it a lot more sinister, too, when you think about it. Like, before, it's like, it's it's out in the open. Like, I don't like you. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I think you're a lesser human. Now it's like, we, now we got to be subtle and, you know, be, you know, subversive now. So that's where you get things like today, um, like, um, well, I'm a tax-paying citizen, when you like break that down, like you think about it, like, well, what the fuck does that mean? What do you mean you're a tax-paying citizen? Because you know, a lot of people when they, you know, uh, use like terminology like that, they're referring to like you know poor people, mm-hmm. you know, 
Like, well, why do they deserve food stamps? I'm a tax-paying citizen. Right. They pay ta- they pay taxes too. Yeah, and that's- so like what? So like what? So what are you inferring there? You know, there's like a lot of, like a lot of things like that that you know are very subtle, but at the same time, when you think about them, they're there's a lot of malice in what you know the people are trying to say. Yeah, it's it's the insinuation. And 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 the thing with insinuation too is there's a lot of you know thought that goes into like how do I how do I hide what I want to say? How do I couch it in in words that may not immediately appear offensive? You like you actually have to really sit down and think about that. Like instead of instead of sitting down and thinking about like what are my what are my preconceived biases that I have uh, towards race and why do I have them? Instead of sitting down and thinking about that, which is, you know, it's a difficult thing to think about in itself, but, you know, it, it requires some um, self-identif- uh, self-identification and, and criticism and things like that. Instead, you sit down and you say, how can I say mean racist things that I want to say <laughs> without actually saying them out loud? I want to say it. And I, I want to use these words, but I want it to be, you know, not immediately noticeable so I don't get just like shit canned by my job right away on after I post it on Facebook. And so like that's that's been a lot of what happens now. And I don't really I don't you know, I, we don't try to make this a political podcast too much, but, you know, that it, we haven't really gotten very far from what the spooks who sat by the door presents um, the only thing that's a little bit different is that this is the in 1973 it was it was definitely closer to the Civil Rights Act, and there are definitely a lot more people who still harbored resentful feelings for no reason other than that that's how they grew up. And then this this movie shows us that, and the script really brings that out by all of these like you know backhanded compliments that are um, set out by the white characters, especially at the beginning of the movie as. Um, Dan Freeman is starting out in the CIA and the CIA is run all by white guys who are basically making it difficult for black men to succeed as being like the first African-American men to enter the CIA. Um, You know, the idea is not to allow them to get into the CIA. The idea is to make it difficult for them to get in, but show that they're giving them the opportunity to do it. Um and that was that's the whole goal. And yet in the film, Dan Freeman's really the only one that succeeds because he puts in the effort, he puts in the work, even at the expense of being called a Tom by his uh you know fellow black um peers, because he's he may, he seems like he is working for the white people um and just doing their bidding, like doing whatever they want him to, so that he can get into the CIA. And you know, that idea of being a Tom is really, you know, a black um, voice because it's not something that we really think about as white people um, of being like subservient to whites because you just want to get along. But that was a really, that's, that really was a thing um, from the civil rights era onward of, you know, are you a black person who, would be considered a Tom because of the subservience. Are you taking, you know, subservient roles, janitor, you know, cleaning up uh, after whites, or are you effectively attempting to um, offset the, the differences in equality that um, 
happened after the Civil Rights Act. <clears throat> but not only that, it do- the film does take a, a Marxist view, too, because, again, we get to see um, well-to-do black people and how mm-hmm. they th- mm-hmm. feel, and it's not just about, you know... It's not just about them being a Tom. It's, you know, about what, you know, what they have compared to, you know, what others don't have and how we, you know, how the system got them there and how, you know. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting component of this movie, too, because Dan Freeman, he's not – you know he's definitely well off. Actually, the one one real unrealistic element of this movie is that Dan Freeman leaves a job at the CIA to go become a social worker in Chicago and get paid more money for it. That's well, totally only, unrealistic. Well, not only that, like we were talking about, like again, cause the the black militancy and like you know the guerrillas, you know, fighting. That's part of like what this film is, but the idea. That you know, uh, Dan Freeman's uh, Lawrence uh, Dan Freeman uh, portrays in this film is that like, oh, well, they'll never suspect us because they think so lowly of us. While white, you know, probably a decent portion of the white population then probably you know would be like, oh, it couldn't be them. At the same time, the man was in the CIA. If they, if he thinks that someone that one of the heads of the CIA or Hoover over at the uh, FBI wasn't going to be investigating to make sure, like, listen, we just had this asshole in the fucking CIA for six years. I mean, sure, he wasn't an operative, but he's been trained by us. He's going to Chicago? You better have somebody follow him, make <laughs> see what the fuck he's up to, you know? Yeah. yeah. Hell, they, they would probably be pissed off that he's a social worker. They'd be like, social work? Are you fucking, no, absolutely <laughs> yeah, right. not. Yeah. Absolutely not. No, you can't have him trying to, you know... Fix issues in, in, you know, in the ghetto. Absolutely. No, no. Like, if you think the FBI and the CIA wouldn't be all over that, like, that's, that's like the one point, <laughs> point about the film that kind of drives me insane. Cause again, this is coming off of, you know, Malcolm being killed, coming off of Martin Luther King being killed. It, it, they were keeping tabs. <laughs> Whether they thought you were competent or not, it, they were fucking keeping tabs. So that that's like the one part of this film that's kind of you know a uh, little unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, but I also I thought it was unbelievable. Like no one's becoming a social worker and making bank now. Maybe back then, maybe in 1973, but now you want to become a social worker, get ready to get paid like the lowest of the low wages, twenty four grand. Yeah, there you go for for a hard work uh, that doesn't stop. <laughs> Uh, there's no sh- definitely no shortage of people who need social workers, and there is a shortage of people who are social workers because mm-hmm. of the shit pay and long hours. I and wonder stress. if it, I wonder if the funding could be anything to do with it. Hmm. I just thought that was funny. Is like he's leaving the CIA. He's he's going to get paid much more money in Chicago got, as a social worker. He's got a bar. He's got a bar at his apartment. Yeah. Yeah, I did, but I did find that really interesting because Dan is also, you know, a well-to-do person, and it does show how other blacks who are also um, in the same situation, like Dawson, who is a friend of Dan's, uh, who is part of the police force, um, you know, how he has come to be part of that as a black person, um, 
in a upstanding position um, and how they feel about the militancy of blacks um, kind of disrupting what they have. Um, that comes up, you know, a few times in the movie about how it doesn't matter what some of them have, you know, they're fighting for everyone. They're fighting for the equality that they deserve. And there is definitely a conflict between Dan feeling like people are just happy to continue their lives as long as their lives are okay versus the rest of the black population who don't have it as good as them are struggling on the streets, um, are basically living in the ghettos because that's where they've been pushed to. And, you know, that's, that's really the conflict of the spook who sat by the door. Um, not, not even just, you know, blacks against the white people who have all the power, but blacks against other blacks who maybe don't understand or don't agree, um, with the, the movement that Dan is creating. I think that's a really strong component of this movie um, that comes out uh, in a few different places, you know, like especially towards the end at the conclusion. Um, But it also comes out with uh, some of the the guys that join the movement um, because, you know, Dan has to kind of recruit people on the street. He has to recruit people, you know, from everybody from, you know, petty thieves and people in the ghetto um, you know, drug dealers, you know, pretty much everybody who he can convince that this movement is something that's worth fighting for. Um, and there's one really good scene where uh, he meets with Pretty Willie, who is um, a black guy who really, for on the surface, looks very white. And there's this idea of passing as this white person that is kind of, you know, not not truly explicitly stated but implicitly implied um that comes out and the film really tackles the idea of passing and what that means for um you know lighter skinned black people um i thought that was really another interesting thing that the spook who sat by the door covers because that's definitely not something that you would see in many black exploitation movies um it's a lot more in depth than you know, we're, we're used to seeing from, from movies like this. Yeah. With uh pretty Willie, a lot of people would probably be like, what the fuck is this white guy doing here? Cause you know, he doesn't, <clears throat> he doesn't look, you know, like he's black at all. Um, so, I mean, it definitely tackles, you know, also to, you know, black, you know, the sense of blackness being more than just color of the skin, but a culture. Um, one thing I will say, even though like, the film like kind of like tackles like these ideas like about um you know as you were talking about like how we see you know different black people with and places of comfort and you know not uh wanting to kind of rock the boat because of that not necessarily being toms but you know like listen i i got you know i made it i don't want to rock the boat um i think the film would have done especially if it you know with the fact that it does have some Marxist messaging, if it wanted to really hit that home, that, you know, the movement definitely should have focused on not just having, you know, African-Americans being the guerrillas fighting, but also, you know, poor white people too, because part of, you know, especially modern day Marxist thinking is it's, you need a multiracial, you know, working class proletariat that's, you know, fighting the system. 
And the fact that they explicitly in this film say, like, when, because in that same scene that you're talking about where, you know, uh, Willie says that, you know, he hates Whitey. And, you know, you get uh, Lawrence Cook saying, like, listen, this, if, it, if this is about just hating Whitey, this ain't fucking for you. You know, it's about freedom. It's about what's taking, you know, taking back, you know, what's owed to us. Yeah, and they, they, with that, with that, with that being a point in the film, I, again, that's where I think, like you know, if they eventually evolved, you know, trying to assuage, you know, poor white people into like, like, listen, you're in the same fucking boat as us. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact, the the fact that the one thing that kept you like high and mighty for all these years is like, at least, at least I'm not a fucking black person. <laughs> yeah, you know? and that and that's being taken like you know, this is like you know, this is how the system keeps us you know pressed if that was inter- you know part of the film's message this would be like a 10 on 10 film because it it hit all the, all the you know all the marks it's not in there nevertheless I, I mean it's still like you know still got good messaging in it yeah i mean i think i think the film does a lot of things really well it has a lot of great one-on-one moments about the movement um and it also has a lot of good scenes in general that involve like action and black exploitation elements. Uh, like the bank robbery scene is really good. That's that that actually. Oh, po- it's so funny though. It it's is like funny. so. It's so like I don't wasn't out at the time, but it's so like dog day afternoon, like fucking like Pacino, <laughs> like with a fedora and shit. Like oh yeah, I, I mean, just go rob a fucking bank. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like it. It's it is it is it is funny, but I I did enjoy it. I think that that scene is really good. I think that the the riot scene is it, the protest is really really well done, um, and it actually you know it really has it smacks of a lot of things that have been occurring lately. Um, you know, with the the um, movements that we've been having with the protests that we've been having, Black Lives Matter movement. Um, it, you know, the the scenes that are in this movie of protests are really really similar to what we've currently been seeing and it's kind of astounding that you know it's been 40 years and not much better <laughs> but um i did think that that they really it you know it it had a lot of elements that just are very similar to what we see today um and i think that the the protests themselves were well shot and uh they had a lot of tension um that that worked well for the movie one of my favorite scenes yeah it was shot in gary indiana not in chicago mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they weren't they weren't welcome in chicago so they did it in indiana still looks very good though mm-hmm. but uh yeah the whole uh protest bit you know that's uh you know really nice it definitely captures like the crampness um today um, it definitely feels, uh, you kind of feel, you know, the visceralness of the fact that, you know, they show cops coming in with dogs and have, you know, having dogs, you know, try to attack the people who are rioting. Um, there's definitely a skis and creepy, you know, creepiness to it. I, the one part I really like is the fact that after, you know, we get to see, um, uh, Dan Freeman, you know, learning from the CIA how to like how to create bombs, how to you know how to fight, how to shoot, all these different things, and then like get watching him like you know show, 
the you know these gorillas that he's been training show them what to do. I really like that because you know it's a little. Uh, I want to say onomatopoeia, but that's not it. It's uh, poetry it rhymes, George Lucas would say. You know, <laughs> basically, yeah, it's it, it's yeah. a nice th- wrap around. It really you know comes full circle. Um, I did like that because it's even the scenes themselves are really set up in the same manner. You know, showing the same exact uh, teaching lessons, basically, um, which I really liked. I did find it pretty funny with the. Uh, the one scene where they're like walking together, um, like the three people like escorting, and then all of a sudden they pop out their guns and <laughs> shoot off, right. or, yeah, or a- guys hiding behind a, a like a divot in the the ground throws out like a, a Molotov, Molotov cocktail, while another guy shoots off into the distance. I did enjoy those those training sessions. And it also wraps around too, because after you know you get to see him making Molotov cocktails, you know, uh, Pretty Willie goes like, "Man, I feel like I'm fucking chem- chemistry in high school." And you know, uh, Dan's like, "Well, all this stuff you get at the drugstore, you need to be able to get this stuff at the drugstore. You're not going to be going, you know, you're not going to be putting in an order for some plastic explosions or anything. So <laughs> yeah. uh, this is what you need to make do with." Which wraps around to you know. His training of them telling you, listen, when you are in a foreign country and you're operating and you need to make a bomb, you got to make sure you fucking do it, uh, with the stuff you, know, you got. Do it with, the, with the stuff you got. Yep. So, um, so what do you, what do you think about the ending, um, of the movie? Because it's, it's, uh, it's got a lot of, um, tension in it. It has a you know kind of a standoff, and then it kind of ends on a fairly abbreviated note. Well, before we even get to the ending, um, you have one of the CIA agents that we know from the beginning uh, being briefed by the colonel, who's the I don't know necessarily like the if he's the head of the C- he wouldn't be the head of the CIA, but he'd be like one of the guys in charge of some of the operatives. Telling them, well, I need to know who the fuck's doing this. And they're like, well, it's probably some Ruski. You know. <laughs> uh, so, and I, you know, we'll go and deal with it. And then, after, you know, after, you know, that, we find out that one of the prostitutes that uh, Dan Freeman was sleeping with in the beginning, when he was in the CIA's academy, came to warn him about it because she's got a pretty good feeling that it's probably uh dan freeman because if you remember from the beginning he was talking when he was talking to her after one of their uh nights of coitus uh, about you know some african history so you know probably would be somebody in on her radar of like oh there's somebody leading black gorillas it's probably uh well i knew this guy that was in the cia that was talking about like african history so that's probably a little strange um which then leads that you know, hit uh, Dan talking to his ex girlfriend who he gets a little irate with and saying too many Marxist things. So she runs off to the police, which is his buddy, 
And then instead of like trying to like slyly interrogate him, he just shows up at his house with a gun and draws it on him. <laughs> which is which that whole part is funny though, because he's like, I got tapes, and that's definitely you on the tape. Like of you know of Uncle Tom. Um, because you get the part, you know, late early on where um we see them raid a radio station and Dan's giving speeches as Uncle Tom, the Black Gorilla Freedom Fighter. And you'd think this um his friend, a you know, detective in the uh, police force, would be like, I fucking know that voice. <laughs> yeah. But it takes someone pointing out, like, hey, I think that's you know, might be Dan. For him to be like, Oh, that's yeah, wow. That voice sounds familiar. <laughs> um Which I'm I you know, I, I think the whole ending's fine. It it's it's not uh, necessarily a problem, but it's it's a trope of the time where shit gets wrapped up pretty neatly in a ten minute window, like it all just comes like crashing down. But I do think you know um, it's definitely interesting because you would think, um, especially in today's world, if this was to be made, we'd get to see Dan get arrested. Like we can't be having terrorist actions like this. And, you know, some kind of, like, uh, law and order message would be given. But, no, you get, uh, yeah, we're attacking. Because um, one of the things that's built throughout the film is the fact that Dan's building cells throughout cities. Several different cities. He's, you know, sending guys that he's trained and then giving them money to then give the training that he's given them to then build up these cells to then, you know, do grill out. Uh, activities, because the idea is, well, America wants to be the police of the world. They can either do that or try to take on us, and they're not going to do both. And so we get to see that kind of come to fruition at the end, where they kind of replay some of the violence that, that the guerrillas affect onto the National Guard earlier in the film, and we get to see that, you know, his plan has been set in motion. And that's how the film ends. And it it ends, and you're think you at first you're thinking like, oh, is he is he gonna die? Because you know it's almost like a wrap up of his entire you know work, but no, he doesn't, and it just ends like that. Um, and I think that the abruptness of the ending is is fine because I don't think that we need to see the entire war. I think what the importance of the spook who sat by the door is is it shows that. It can be done, and it and in this case, he was able to successfully do it. And what happens after this is kind of like up to you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're leaving it intentionally vague because it's almost like an entreaty to the to the viewer. It's like, well, this is the start. What do you do with it? Um. Which I kind of like. I kind of like that it, it sets that up in terms of like it's it's up to the viewer what happens next. You know, does does this succeed? Does it fail? Uh, why would it fail? And, you know, you're left with all of these questions. Um, the abruptness works in this scenario. Um, and I, I liked it a lot because I think it leaves a lot of questions to be answered that the film doesn't really need to, to give you. Um, it's really up to the viewer. But it's definitely, like, again, like, it's definitely, uh, 
it's it's just it's such a just a great idea. Taking the notion of blowback and then apl- applying that blowback from the CIA to domestic operations and some of the ramifications. Yep. Um, we didn't talk about the uh, the score by Herbie Hancock. It's good, but um, like a lot of black exploitation films, because a lot of them get very well renowned composers. I will say, though, more so than like Sweet Sweet Back, where you got Earth, Wind, and Fire like fucking playing throughout the entire thing, or like Superfly, where you got Chris Mayfield. It's definitely more understated. Um, there's not like it's not like a con- persistent score that's going throughout. It's you know with in the moments that justify having music. So when his score is going, it's good, but it's not like a presence throughout the entire film. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think his score is fine, but it's not really that noticeable um, throughout much of it. It definitely has like a, what we would consider like a really classic black exploitation element to it um, with like the, the, the organ work that Herbie Hancock does. Um, I don't think that it really has anything that kind of draws the viewer to it uh, that is pronounced or like, you know, noticeable. Um, so it's, it is interesting that kind of like lays low. It's not really noticeable at all. It's just kind of, which, which fits with the theme of the film. It is true though. Yeah. The idea of laying low being the, you know, the, the guy who just is there, but no one notices. Do you want like James Brown, like in Black Caesar, just going through like, hit that? <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely doesn't have that. You do want more understated than that, for sure. <laughs> Which would make this film a lot more interesting if you're like, okay, now it's a uh, uh, spook who sat by the door with James Brown as the composer. And like I said, too, I mean, that that is also what sets it apart from other black exploitation movies is like, you know, it's it is a lot more understated. It it is more impl- implicit in some cases. It's not, you know, an exaggerated action movie where the the villain is a white guy caricature. You know, um, it definitely has a lot more. Uh, I don't know, like like nuance to its writing than what you would normally expect from a black exploitation it, it, movie. Oh, that and it skews away from stereotypes. You know, a lot of black, especially a lot of black exploitation has you know pimps, drug dealers, drugs. Here it's like explicitly like, listen, you don't be a fucking junkie. It doesn't do you any good. Yeah, you know, kind of. You know, the whole kind of film for the most part uh, doesn't really stereotype in any way. The only stereotyping really is is uh, mainly just. Uh, Whitey saying things behind black people's backs. Yeah, and it, you know, and it also talks too about the the idea that drugs are actually an influx of ways to keep black people down. Um, if you've got drugs, and a lot of your population is addicted to drugs or selling drugs because that's all they have, then they are not worried about anything else. You know, they're not worried about an uprising. And the film talks about that, that the white influx of drugs uh, is sort of like another way to, to have power over 
black people because you know rich white people sometimes aren't i mean not not all the time obviously but rich white people a lot of times aren't the ones that are getting addicted to crack and you know living in the ghettos and that's speaking of the ghettos that's another thing the film talks about is how uh the ghettoization of blacks is essentially um you can consider it like a colony within america and how that cut, you know, they're so, you know different from the rest of America. How they're lesser areas, and how the fact that they have police constantly patrolling these areas isn't is essentially the same as because we get to see later on when the National Guard comes after the riots that we get to see you know uh, Dan Fr- Freeman basically tell his buddy Dawson, who's a cop, that it's it's the same goddamn thing. You're an occupying force. And all you're meant to do is you're here to protect property, not people, and not to try to better the lives of people. And that's part of the problem. And if you have an understanding of those kind of things, you can kind of think about that and kind of extrapolate it to today. And how these same fucking things are still these nasty, lingering things that exist in today that people ignore. <laughs> Did we cover everything that you want to talk about? Is there anything you want to talk about? I, did you did are these things that you extrapolated from the film? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I these these or were you, or or were you sitting there with white guilt afterwards like, "Wow, I'm a, I'm a bad person." No. <laughs> no, I don't think that this film is really intended to to um elicit white guilt. Um you know, more so, it's it's a way to make people think about, you know, what happens, what what is keeping black people from from being able to get the equality that they deserve. What you know, what kind of things um, are afforded to white people that aren't necessarily afforded to black people in the same manner. Um, you know, obviously things have changed a little bit since 1973, but not very much. Um, and I, oh, I'll say sorry to interrupt. But one th- one line that kind of is like the key. Well, not key, but like it's one of the differences. Uh, when you get to see the training later on, you see Dan go. Now I'm going to teach you how to steal, and they all laugh. And he's like, "I know you know how to fucking steal, but you steal from you know people that you shouldn't be stealing from. Mm-hmm. I want you to steal from people that need to have what stolen from them." And he goes, you know, he goes, a, a black man with a mop and a bucket's the most, you know, unnoticeable man in the world. He can go wherever the fuck he wants in this country. And we get to see that in action. Like, you know, and he goes, a black man with a smile is unnoticeable. No one sees him. And you get to see that in action because he's just mm-hmm. sitting there going like, how's it going? You know, we don't see, hear him say it, but you can see like with the motions, like he's basically doing like the, how do you do, sir? Going to do that, sir. You know. And how, how that, you know, is kind of missed today and how, like, you get to hear from a lot of people today, like, well, these fucking people are just so goddamn uppity, you know? Yeah, That's, yeah. like, that, 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 I, lo- I, like, that little part, it's only, like, a little t- three-minute bit, but I, like, I, that part's great, watching, you know, him kind of, you know, then go in and, like, steal the pipes from the guy, but, like, that just messaging right there. 
You yeah, know? definitely. And you know, it's the same idea as you know, like it, you know, it, it should resonate with uh, with a lot of people too, because you know, we could take that in a variety of manners. It's the same thing with people who are on welfare, like you know, people on welfare that you're upset about for not working. Like, why are you upset with them? Don't be upset with them. Be upset with the people who don't pay you to make any money. That's the same. It's the same idea. You know, like that's, that's what they're saying in this movie too. It's like, you know, don't steal from your fellow brethren who also don't have anything. Steal from the people who deserve it. Um, that, that are, are hoarding and, and not, you know, not affecting social change. Um, and that again, that's where when I said earlier too, if this film had more like if they involved like at the end, like you know, a, an incident with poor white people and be like, like your brothers with us too, like you know, if that was it, like again, that's like the whole like if that was also in this film too, it'd be like I said, perfect because again, it's like that clash class consciousness, like all right, because again. That's, as you said, when it comes to, like, welfare, that's something you hear from people all the fucking time. Like, well, this lazy asshole on fucking food stamps buying Slim Jims over here. It's like, what the fuck? Like, what what difference does that make to you? Does that impact your life? Like, come on. That's not the issue. Right. The issue isn't somebody, like, you know, spending $3 on at your gas station on fucking food stamps on Slim Jims. That's not the issue. Tackle the real issue. And that's yeah, that that is what what those scenes is trying to do as well. Is you know, you know, we're not fighting, we're not doing infighting here. We're fighting, you know, against a a more uh, a bigger oppressor than that. And that, that's another thing too with uh, with um, Pretty Willie too is you know he talks about rage. You know, Pretty Willie has rage against the white people, and uh, you know he said rage isn't going to get you very far. You know, because that dissipates, you know, <laughs> you're, you're going to be, you're going to have rage for a little while. And then, then what, then what, what happens after that? You get older and then you, it dissipates and either turns into nihilism or j- just being, you know, being okay. That's what it is. Right. Yeah. The rage yeah. isn't what they're looking for. They're looking for something else. You know, not just feeling rage, but wanting change. Long-term action. Yep. All right. So so next week we're doing Black Hill to <laughs> counterpoint uh, <laughs> some, of the, some of the black exploitation <laughs> elements that we talked about in this episode. Hmm. All right. So um, we're going to give this movie a rating. And let's see. I'm trying to think of a good scale for this one. I really have one. I don't no, Nothing that really pops out to me from the, the movie that, that I think would make a good scale. Um, you got anything? I'm trying to think, I guess just on a scale of one to 10, uh, white dude pipes. <laughs> <laughs> what would you give? No, that's, that's too lame. Too lame. Too lame. Yeah. Nothing How else about, how about out of one to ten token white mustaches? Yeah, there are quite a few in here. Quite yeah. a lot of uh, white mustaches because it's the early seventies. What would you give the spook who sat by the door? Um, I would give it a 
Nine out of ten. Oh. Yeah. I think it's a really good movie. I, it, it definitely held my attention. Um, I really liked the elements at play in it. Um, the conflict, the way that it treated um, black exploitation as a genre and was a lot more serious than I was expecting. Um, it uh, has a great voice to it, um, you know, written by black people, directed by black people. Um, that's what, you know, that's what you really want. You know, I don't, I don't need to hear from the white perspective on this one. I don't, I don't need to see a movie directed by a white guy, um, about this, you know, this, this context. Um, and I thought that they did a really good job of just showing the plight of, you know, the black person in this era, the movement made sense to me. And I think they did a great job in directing it to correspond with um, the early CIA elements and then later on using those for guerrilla warfare. I thought it was a a great juxtaposition. Um, So overall, I think it's a really good movie. It's an important movie. Um, Historically, you know, as a part of film history, I think it's definitely one of the finest blaxploitation movies that everyone should watch if they enjoy blaxploitation. Um, and I think that it really res- it still resonates today. So, um, for good or bad, you know, it's definitely, uh, a movie that when you watch it, you're going to see a lot of, um, similarities to current events. It, you know, obviously things should have changed since then, but unfortunately they haven't. <clears throat> Um, I will agree with you on the rating. I, I'll give it a 9 out of 10. Um, it's definitely a film uh, coming off of not just the civil rights movement, but like the Black Power Movement and with the Black Panther Party. Um, it's definitely has that. It's definitely got a, you know, black forward message and a black egalitarian message of trying to present black people who with deserving equal rights and a Malcolm X by any means necessary kind of messaging behind it of if it takes militancy to achieve the objective, then so be it. Um, it also gives a class consciousness, a Marxist view that, um, definitely resonates it's very progressive of a it's a very progressive in its ideals it explains and exercises it with great care but also great attention and great diligence but it's also very straightforward you can't you can't miss it at all besides the fact that of it being a incredibly powerful film when it comes to the political messaging. It's a very well done film. Uh, Ivan Dixon does a great job with the directing. Um, it definitely has a style and body to its, you know, body of work to its own. The, you know, the shoot, how they shoot the riot scene is very well done. Makes you feel claustrophobic. Definitely makes you feel the brutality of what's going on there. Um, Dan Freeman does a 
I mean, sorry, Lawrence Cook does a very good job as Dan Freeman, our main protagonist, um, does a great job echoing the sentiments of the film and being a harbinger of the message. Um, I think a lot of the ideas in this film are still relevant today, and I think a lot of people, especially white people, would benefit seeing something like this to kind of try to give you like a more nuanced take of like some of the things that still happen today. Um, I w- would like to say they probably would glean more from it than they should, but I got a feeling a lot of people, if we showed this to them today, would just probably scare the shit out of them instead of them actually being reflective on it and how it kind of parrots today's world. But, um, it's definitely a nine out of ten film. It's a very it's this is a great film. Uh not just for black exploitation or black power movement films, but just in general. It's a great piece of art. Um and that's why it's in the Library of Congress for the National Film Registry. I actually got there eight years before Sweet Sweetback, so you know. <laughs> that says something. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Sweet Sweetback's like the seminal black exploitation film that took till 2020 to get into the Library of Congress, but this got in there in 2012. So you know, it was you know what? It's because Obama was president then that black nationalists said get that fucking thing in there, <laughs> and because he's also from Chicago, so you know he he orchestrated that. All right, so there you have it. Our episode on the spook who sat by the door. Uh, next, we're going to be back next week, right? Yeah. We're doing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Requel Another black exploitation film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're doing that Texas Chainsaw Massacre re- requel that was on Netflix uh, that you've been hearing such bad things about. Oh, it was on Netflix? They pulled it down? No, it's on Netflix. Oh, you said it was on Netflix. Well, that is on Netflix, I should say. It's not pulled down, but... Uh, I have not heard good things about it, so uh, we are going to check it out because I haven't watched it yet. Oh, um, luckily it's only eighty-one minutes long. Yep, that's that's the other thing too. Is it's fairly short, so that's good. We'll get it get it done and over with. People said that they even at the short length they were having a hard time finishing it. So I'm I'm really really can't wait to watch. And I I have also heard that it's basically like an effective. Uh, attempt to revitalize Texas Chainsaw Massacre in exactly the same way that Halloween tried that was Halloween was doing. So the the twenty eighteen Halloween. Do you think Toby Hooper's rolling over in his grave? Probably. Or do you think he's like, it was me who well, directed well, Poltergeist? You know what? Toby Steve. Hooper uh had some some flubs later on in his life anyway, so what do you mean had some? He had flubs. Not he had quite a few the yeah. only film that he made after Texas Chainsaw Ma- Massacre. Mm-hmm. After Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that wasn't trash. Was uh, that was uh, the Mangler? <laughs> yeah. Oh, and and his story in body bags. That's true. Can't um, remember which one he did. Which one did he do? I can't remember now. I can't remember. But anyway, <laughs> next week we're going to have Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the requel, the Netflix movie. 
Uh, we'll do that one. And then after that, we're preparing for St. Patrick's Day. And I, be- I do believe that our, our next Leprechaun movie is Leprechaun Back to the Hood. Because I think we, we skipped a year. We didn't do a St. Patrick's Day episode last year. Uh, so I think we're on Back to the Hood. I can't. No, you know what? We're done. You you just rather not do it. Well, I agree. We, after, well, we stopped. We stopped. So there's no point going back. Like after right. Leprechaun in the Hood, you you pretty much just want to call it quits. But but we do need to continue. We have Leprechaun back to the Hood, and then we have um the the new Leprechaun movie, uh, which I don't know if we really consider it a Leprechaun movie because it doesn't have Warwick Davis in it. But You're talking about the one, the WWE one? Yeah. Wait, we're already almost there? Yeah, we're, we're, we've got Leprechaun back to the hood, and then I think we're on to that one. Oh, wow, wow. Because uh, that's, that's it. That's it. Leprechaun back to the hood is the last Leprechaun movie that Warwick Davis did. I can't believe it. <laughs> heavy, heavy sigh there, huh? <laughs> but I don't want to see a WWE film. <laughs> yeah. I remember so vividly the box art from Back to the Hood because I used to see it at Video World all the fucking time. Don't you just want to watch fucking An Idiot Abroad with Warwick Davis? Yeah. <laughs> Let's just do that instead. <laughs> You know, we'll do Idiot Abroad with Warwick Davis and Carl Pilkington. I didn't even know that they did. What? They did a lot. They did. Oh, yeah, that's right. This was a. That's right. This was a sci-fi one. Yeah. So we got after Back to the Hood, we've got two other ones. We've got the WWE one, which is Leprechaun Origins, which I've never seen. And then we have Leprechaun Returns, which was a sci-fi original movie. So. Hopefully, both of those are really sounding promising. Actually, all three of those are really sounding promising. And then we're done with Leprechaun movies, so then we have to move on Tremors. to a different... Tremors. Is that a St. Patty's Day episode? Uh, a St. Patty's Day movie? Sure. <laughs> uh, I was thinking Luck of the Irish, the Disney I... Channel original movie. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think it'd be better off if we gave uh, Michael Gross all our money that we can. And Reba's in Tremors, so. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that, yeah. They used to play that fucking movie all the time. I know. Look at the Irish. I remember it so vividly. <laughs> <laughs> just, just thinking of, your family call, you gonna send me off at the client Lake Addy? No, my family's from Cleveland, and they drop them in Lake Erie. It's not Lake Erie. It's Lake Erie. Boop, boop. That's going to be our next year. Is we're just going to do all the Disney Channel original movies. So for Halloween, we're going to do all the Halloween towns. Uh, is your sister going to be on it? <laughs> yeah. yeah she can. All right. Well, catch us next time for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, look at that. Look at that fucking poster for the luck of the Irish. Kid today, leprechaun tomorrow. (laughs) You know what? Can we do smart house instead? Yes. With Katie Seagal. Let's do smart house. I'm glad you're enjoying it. (laughs) 
All right, so thanks for listening to our Spooku Sat by the Door episode. Um, we are on pretty much any podcasting app that you can think of, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, our home base at anchor.fm. Um, you can actually check us out on Facebook now too because I did uh, add our podcast feed to Facebook. So if you are on Facebook and you use that for your listening, you can find us on there, facebook.com slash bloodandblackrum. Uh, we're also on Twitter at bloodandblackrum. You can write to us at our email address at bloodandblackrumpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, what you want to hear us cover, and we will take that into consideration. And, of course, you can donate to us on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bloodandblackrumpodcast. Um, you can also subscribe to us on our anchor.fm page. Anything that you can donate to us are, uh, is really helpful. It helps us buy beer, uh, so we, we truly appreciate it. Uh, Thanks for listening. We hope you tune in next week for our Texas Chainsaw Massacre episode. And until then, take care.